Tonight, obviously, we're going to talk about observation. <clears throat> so this is actually, uh, there's going to be multiple times tonight when you're probably going to look up here and be like, well, duh. I mean, um, there, there's going to, this is actually a, a fairly simple exercise um, to do, although um, in, in a lot of ways, this is kind of like Lombardi who would, you know, get up in front of his football team every single season. Some of y'all may have heard this. And he started out, I mean, he's professional football players, right? And he starts out by saying, hey, guys, this is a football, all right? And professional football is like, yeah, okay. Um, but he's starting with the basics. Like, this is blocking and tackling. This is the fundamentals of, of, of Bible study is found in, in this key to effective Bible study, that is observation. So um, observation very plainly is the means by which we answer the question, what do I see? So when we come to the text, it's really, really important for us to um, actually pay attention with a critical eye to what's actually in the text. There's a difference between someone who gives a cursory glance reading to uh, a, a Bible verse and moves on and just says, hey, I read that. Yeah, OK, I know it. There's a, there's a major difference between that person and a person who comes to the text seeking to understand, hey, what is actually there that the Holy Spirit inspired um, the writer of this text to put down um, for me and, and for me to learn? There, there is meaning in the text. And so, um, in, in fact, uh, Nika introduced you guys to the term exegesis last week to literally uh, the, the preposition ek in Greek just means to from, out of, or from. So to exegete is to pull out of the text. And so before we're, able, before we're able to ever get to interpretation or application, we have to start here. Most people make a big, big mistake by reading a text, not doing this, jumping directly into interpretation and then attempting to apply out of that interpretation that because they skipped this step is fundamentally flawed. Okay? So even though tonight may feel a little bit like this feels like kind of like basic building blocks, that's what it is. But I'm telling you, the best people, the, the, the most accurate theologians out there are the ones that do observation really well. Okay? So um, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But before we do that, we're going to kind of set the stage and Nike is going to help us with that. Yeah, in case that football metaphor missed on you, ladies, um, for cosmetology, this is a mirror, right? Same idea. So, uh, you know, one of the things people do when they want to learn their Bible is they, they just go, okay, I want to learn the book of Acts, and they open it up, and they just start reading. And um, one of the things that you really want to do is back up and go, hey, I need to set the stage for what I'm reading. And so in, in one of my classes in seminary, one of the professors talked about this study that had been done. There were two groups of people, and there were like 40 people in one room and 40 people in another room. And they gave them all, you know, let's say John 1 through 5, just the text of the Bible. And then in this group, they gave them who wrote it, when it was written, why it was written, who it was written to, and all this background information. And then they read that, and then they all read John 1 through 5 and told they were going to be asked a bunch of questions just about what they read, not interpreting it, not understanding it, just the details of what was in the text. And this group who had the background information had 100% better retention than this group. 
just because they were able to put the details into perspective and go, okay, I, kn- I know why John's mentioning these things. I know because of who he's written it to and when he's written it and so on and so forth. And so observation is always going to start with asking the five W questions. And who thinks they know the five W questions? <laughs> right, who, what, when, where, why, all that. So the first one you want to ask is who. And there's really two who's that you want to ask. Um, the first one is going to be the author. And so what we're going to do is show you how easy this information is to come by. How many of y'all in this room have a study Bible? Great. They give you the answers right before you read it. So go ahead and turn, if you have your study Bible with you tonight, and go ahead and turn just to the intro on Acts. And it's going to walk you through every introduction to every commentary you're going to read is going to give you this information at the beginning. And so many times people want to skip over it, but if every commentary does that and every study Bible includes it, it's probably a hint that it's important. And so for the book of Acts, who wrote it? Luke, right. And what book did he also write? Luke, right, good. Okay, and so what do we know about Luke? Does anybody know anything about Luke? He was a doctor. Did he know Paul personally? Yeah, there's several sections throughout the book of Acts where he says, we did this, and we did this, and we did this. And so he has a firsthand account, a lot of what's going on in the book of Acts. Um, What about the audience? Does anybody know who Acts was written to? Theophilus. Does anybody know what Theophilus means? Lover of God. You guys are so smart. Yes, lover of God. And it's a Greek term. And so it's written to this guy, Theophilus. Um, There are a lot of theories on it that maybe Theophilus was a Roman leader. Maybe it was just a name, but it was actually written to a lot of people and all that. But given the Gentile nature of the name and a lot of the words that are used in it, Gentile simply means not Jew for, for a quick illustration. And so there are some significant differences when somebody's writing to a Jewish audience in the cultures and norms they'll use and when they're writing to a Gentile audience. And so you're going to pick up on that as you continue to read through Acts. So we've done the who, and then you've got the what, the literary genre. So if you were here last week, what genre do you think this falls into? Yeah, history. Good. Very good. History narrative. And so it's going to be different than poetry. It's going to be different all that. So as you're reading it, you're going to see that Luke is going to put names and places and times and different markers to help you go, hey, I can nail this down to a place and time. This is who was ruling. This is what was going on. And all those different things will help you to understand the context of this book. What about when it was written? Anybody gotten there yet in their study Bible? Anybody read early 60s? Yeah, early 60s. And so one of the things that if, you, if you're a history buff, you'll know that in just a couple of years, Nero is going to come onto the scene, and he's a really bad dude, and he's going to start persecuting the Christians and all of that. And so this is a little bit before that. It's before Paul has really gone to die, quite frankly, and it's leading up to that. And so it gives you a little bit of picture of the cultural context of which Luke is writing this book in if you're, if you're a history buff or if you just watch the Discovery Channel a lot. Uh, where, historical setting, and so um, anybody know where Theophilus was a, was a government official? What city? Not Jerusalem, but the other big one at the time. Rome. It would have been Rome. And so, um, if you've, and so great, you might want to even flip over to Romans at some point and go, hey, this is a little different time period that Romans was written, but it gives me some understanding of what maybe the church was like in Rome, what's going on. And so all of this stuff is informing the background information And then finally, why? What was the purpose? And this one, I would argue, is the most important one. Because if you can understand what the author is doing, then it helps you to understand why he's picking specific details. And so a lot of scholars believe there's a twofold purpose to this. One is to give an ordered account, like he says in Luke 1, to to tell Theophilus an ordered account of what has happened in in a historical way. 
The other thing is, is Paul's leading up to his trial. And so a lot of scholars believe that he's, he's creating an orderly account of what has actually happened in the early Christian church to, to inform the readers so that all these accusations that have been thrown against Paul, Luke is going, hey, here's what actually happened. And so we have this really detailed account that allows us to go, hey, this is a trustworthy account of what's going on in the early church. And so once you have all of that information, then you begin to see why Luke would choose certain stories and why he's building the book the way that he did. And so for any of you who don't have a study Bible or you want to reach for a little bit more scholarly thing, write down this website, www.bible.org. It's a very clever title. It's about the Bible. Um, and there's a guy named Dr. Daniel Wallace, and he's written an introduction for every book of the New Testament. And they, all of them are titled the same thing. So if he's writing on Acts, it'll be Acts, a colon, and then the words introduction, outline, argument. So you'll read Romans, introduction, outline, argument. And you go and you just type in that word, and it'll give you all of this information for any book that you're wanting to read. And so he'll tell you why we believe the author is the author that, that they claim it and why it was written to the people and all of that. And so if you're ever needing a good, solid review, that would be the website we would send you to. All right, perfect. <clears throat> the importance of the five W's, when, when you're talking about it from, from a uh, standpoint of story, then the importance of the five W's is that, like the book of Acts is, like, like we said, it falls under the genre of historical narrative. So as historical narrative, it's telling a story. And what the five W's do is, it is you are building the set on which this narrative can play out as story. Okay, um, if you ever try to do a play without a set, all right, you, you can still say the lines and, and, and it can even make, make some sense, uh, but you're not going to get the, the full picture of what's actually happening and, and what the author intended for you to see. All right, it's just a good metaphor. Um, that's why we used set the stage. So before you even go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, um, it's very important to to, to, hey, you know, let's, before I even do this, I'm going to ask, who's the author? Who's the audience? What, what does this uh, work fall under as far as genre of literature? Um, what's the date? What's the historical setting? What's the, why is the author writing to this audience? You're asking all of these things as a good student of the text to, to be able to uh, uh, allow the play to play out on the set that, that, uh, that you've now accurately built, Okay. All right, now we're going to go to uh, kind of the other handout that is uh, all the slides. And, and so what I'm going to do over the next hour or so is walk you through 20 of the key elements of observation. All right, <clears throat> you're, you're like, dude, that's 20 of them, man, that come. <laughs> you're like, hey, what is that, like three points in a story and we're out of here, right? Um, again, this is, uh, this, this is something that is a, a learned discipline over time. And I would tell you, um, the more you do this and the more you discipline yourself to do this accurately, the more it's going to feel like second nature when you come to the text. Okay. And, and so a lot of times people are like, oh, this is daunting. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I know it feels like that a little bit, but I'm just telling you, like, take one step, one step, one step. And before you know it, you're jogging. And before you know it, you're running. Okay. Um, so don't be intimidated by it. Just uh, let's just roll with it and see what happens. <laughs> All right. The first element of observation is repetition. So when you come to a text and there is repetition in that text, the author is intending to communicate something to you by that repetition, by that repetition. This is a uh, this is just a stylistic um, technique that an author would use to make a point. All right. So where we would find this 
is a great example of this is 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What's he repeating? World. All right, this is really obvious. I, it's, I think we could safely say, hey, I think he might be talking about the world, right? And so um, when, when you come to this text, then, I mean, a good student of the text is going gonna, is gonna to point that out, circle it, underline it. You know, hey, something about this is, is the world. And it may even ask you what exactly, you know, it may uh, uh, prompt further questions to say, what exactly is he talking about in reference to the world? Right? And so that's going to lead you down uh, a further road for, for you to uh, dive deeper into what the author I- is intending. All right? and, and, and not just in this passage, but all right, what's the broader context here and, and, uh, and what is ultimately the author um, uh, attempting to communicate. All right? The second one, contrast. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger, okay? What's the author attempting to contrast here? Okay, yeah, there's, there's, there's obviously a gentle answer, and then what's the contrasting uh, is a harsh word, okay? So you're seeing, you're seeing something there, and, and obviously, you know, the, the author in, in this case um, is is uh, Solomon, then, then we're saying, hey, um, Solomon is attempting to, in, in this proverb, to show you that, hey, one answer is going to do this and another answer is going to do this. And these are polar opposites, okay? Again, a literary technique to make a point. Hey, if you, if you want to continue to stir up anger, then respond harshly. If, if you want to um, turn away someone's wrath, then give them a gentle answer, all right? Guess who's learning that in his marriage? This guy, right? <clears throat> Margaret, this guy, <laughs> all right? Um, so yeah, the, the, again, a, um, th- this, this might seem elementary to say, well, of course it's a contrast, but just paying attention to it is, is going to allow us to, again, put that picture together that's actually an accurate picture. Thirdly, comparison. James chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder when, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. He's comparing, the, he's comparing the tongue to what? M- multiple things here, right? He's comparing it to uh, a bridle in the mouth of a horse as a, uh, as a rudder on a very small rudder on a big ship. He's, he's uh, comparing it to a small spark that can set a massive forest fire, right? Again, he's using the literary technique of comparison to, to show this is what can happen when your tongue is unbridled or is a spark or 
is steering, it, it has the capacity to steer things, steer massive situations one way or the other. Okay? Um, again, just paying attention to what the author is doing. Fourthly, lists. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and stuff like that. (laughs) I, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, um, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Okay? Um, so Paul is, has two different lists, and he's what? What, what did we just look at? Uh, 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 he's, he's contrasting them, right? Good. He's contrasting them, but he's also listing out what? The, the deeds of the what? The deeds of the flesh versus uh, contrasted against what? The fruits of the Spirit. Okay? Um, in other words, he, he's going, hey, when, when you are in your flesh, it looks like this. When you are, when you are in the Spirit, it looks like this. And, and one of the things, too, that you do with lists, one of the things that's really helpful for me with lists is when we try to demonize a certain sin. Right? So we'll say sexual immorality is the first one. So we're going to be like, yeah, people like, you know, adultery, pornography, you know, deviant behavior regarding sexuality. It's pretty bad, right? Um, Impurity, yeah, that too, you know. Um, Idolatry, witchcraft, of course, it's horrible. Did you skip debauchery because you don't know what it means? Debauchery, sorry. I do every time too. Yeah, some of y'all, some of y'all, you know. (laughs) Well, there's people who know what debauchery means, and there's people that know Know what debauchery debauchery means. (laughs) Which one are you, Nate? (laughs) Margaret. (laughs) Yeah, right. So, um, but then you get like this is what this is what's helpful helpful for me with a list: idolatry, witchcraft. We're like, yeah, those things are horrible, right? Um, hatred, um, uh, discord, right? My contact just came out. That's what I'm talking about. Stand by. Anybody wearing contacts in here? All right. Y'all are going to be grossed out by this if you don't. <laughs> Boom. There it is. <clears throat> Rust, you have to pull it out of your own first, yeah, buddy. That's, right. that's my spec. <laughs> that's your log. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> my spec, your log. Um, so then you get to hatred and then you're like, discord. Oh, like, you mean like disunity? You mean like jealousy? You mean like anger? Selfish ambition? Dissensions? Uh, factions? Envy? Uh, I mean, so in other words, things that, that are more like uh, acceptable sins for us are right next to witchcraft and idolatry, right? And so the, the, sometimes lists like this, that's one of the purposes that it's serving is to show you like, no, um, your, your flesh is going to manifest itself in all different types of ways. And for some people, the manifestation of the flesh is this, but, but your envy and your um, selfish ambition is just as sinful and, and, and is just as full of the flesh 
as someone's debauchery or orgies or sexual immorality, right? And so there's a, there's a leveling ground here. Um, and, and yet at the same time, uh, when, when contrasted against that, um, the, the fruit of the Spirit or, or the, the type of um, not just external behaviors, but internal affections that the Spirit is producing in the life of the Christian is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and, and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Okay? And, and they're contrasted, and yet, and yet it's a very clear picture um, what, uh, what Paul is attempting to communicate here in the book of Galatians. Okay? Um, one more, and then we'll take, a, uh, take some questions if you have any so far. Fifthly, cause and effect. Right? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Um, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay, what is the effect in this verse? Anybody? Okay, yeah, yeah. The, the, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is the cause? Okay, um, yeah, well, really, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's transformation through the renewing of your mind. Okay, so there, there's something, a lot of times people are like, well, just, uh, you know, um, man, if, if, you'll just go, if you'll just go do X, Y, and Z, then you'll, you'll like determine God's will. Or if you'll do this or do that, right? And, and yet Paul is, is after something much deeper here, and he's saying, no, the, the cause that is causing the effect of walking in the will of God is that your mind is being transformed uh, or, or you are being transformed through the renewal of your mind. This is not necessarily a behavior modification as much as it is a belief modification, right? Your mind is tracking with the mind of God. And when that's going on, then your affections are going to begin to change. And, and then um, you, you will not only be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It is something that you're walking in. Okay, and 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 that also is not conform, con, uh, you know, conforming to the pattern of the world. And so there again, coming to this verse, and 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 you might just gloss over it or give it a cursory look, but but the the student of the text is observing and saying, hey, what's actually going on here? Is this a cause and effect? Okay, so we've covered five of them so far. Does anybody have any questions? And there's two microphones in the middle here in case. Uh, Somebody's just burning to ask something. Anybody? Pretty straightforward so far? Yep. Hey, will y'all pass him the mic? Um, somebody. There we go. I guess I could do that. <laughs> I'll race y'all. <laughs> hey, uh, make sure it's on too, because there's an on switch down at the bottom. On, on number four, Sweet. when you talk about when you talk about the list versus uh, the good list and the fruit of the spirits, yep. I noticed that you also, when you went through that list, you you interpret some other, you put some other words to define some of the words that you had in there, such as uh, Mike. Other, other words that you used to define that. So I was just wondering, I know that the Holy Spirit reveals to you in, in, when you're reading 
the word. So my question is, you're going to know what is, you know, some of the words are real direct. Yep. You know, and others Sorry. you kind of, there's some other words you can kind of define what they mean. You know, I guess. Uh, are you talking about the fruit of the spirit when I said love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? Instead of, because I know, secondly, the second time I said it, I said, instead of forbearance, I said uh, another word. Is that what you're talking about? No, let, let, me, uh, let me see if I can, uh, when you were talking about drunkenness, drunkenness is so straightforward, but orgies, and you define some other words. And so, you know, you can kind of add what you want to add, right? Or in those definitions and stuff. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I was just trying to read it fairly straightforward. Yeah. So if I added something, um, you know, it's, it's, it's either, uh, it was either my, uh, you know, my, my memorization of this passage from another translation or something like that. But I wasn't trying to, like, you know, alter what's okay. being That's said there. You know, you, you say when you read it, you interpret what you'd really want to interpret. You yep. know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for that, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, and uh, for sure, the, the other thing about this, and it brings up an interesting point about uh, different translations. So um, I believe this one is, uh, this, I think this might be ESV. Um, I can't remember, honestly. <laughs> um, I, I created this a long time ago, but... Um, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that we'll get to when we talk through interpretation of, of uh, the, you know, sometimes it is helpful to read various translations alongside of one another to see what different men, how different men have, have uh, translated the original text. But I definitely wasn't, if I, you know, was adding something or taking away from that, that was not my intent. So, all right. Anybody else? Okay, Micah, you got anything to add? Nope. Sweet. Good job. All right, let's drive on. Drive on. <laughs> All right, figures of speech. This one is actually, and uh, we're going to go through a handful of these. This is, this is where, where a lot of people get, uh, get lost or um, can be confusing uh, for some people, and, and you'll see why. Um, so the first one we'll look at is a simile. This is comparing two things using like or as. So, uh, um, you know, a, a great verse for this would be Jesus's discourse to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones, the, the, full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. OK, so obviously Jesus is using a simile simile here where he's comparing the Pharisees to what? A whitewashed tomb, okay? And typically when people ask me, you know, because uh, uh, I, I do a, a lot of work in, in the area of the life of Christ, and a lot of times people ask me, you know, hey, you know, what's this whole vision of like Jesus being more like a Mr. Rogers type character, you know, that's just going around and, and uh, has a nice groomed beard and is just hugging everybody and hey, everybody just get along, you know, come on. It's just, just a unity everywhere and let's sing Kumbaya, right? Um, pretty much the first thing I do is I'm like, hey, go read Matthew chapter 23, all right? Um, this whole chapter, Jesus is blasting the, the Pharisees, all right? He's not holding back. You brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites, you sons of hell, right? Um, you, you, don't, you don't take Mr. Rogers and nail him to a tree, 
<laughs> okay? So, so whatever like uh, image of this tame Jesus that you have in your mind, it's probably not, not the Jesus of Scripture, okay? Um, now, does that mean that Jesus was going around just body slamming people left and right? I, I, I don't think that's probably accurate either, all right? So let's be careful with that. But for sure, um, there was an edge to him, okay? Um, and, and, and it's interesting whenever we try to, to, uh, to put God in our nice, neat little box that we feel comfortable about him being in, he, he always tends to elbow his way out of it, all right? So if, if that's you, then, then uh, this, is a, this is a great passage to, to uh, maybe challenge that um, view of the Lord. So similarly, comparing two things is like or as. This, this happens, I mean, this figure of speech goes on like uh, all the time. We do this all the time. Uh, man, that was like this. That was like the best example. Is that what you mean? Yes, it absolutely was. <clears throat> Every once in a while, Micah's just going to insert comedic like interludes. If I don't, I might explode. To, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you I wouldn't believe what I'm holding back. Yeah, right. Mr. Hey, Rogers asked, nailed to a I asked tree. You a second ago, I know, right? <laughs> I asked you a second ago if you had anything to add. And you're, hey, yeah, mm, no, missed my uh, chance. Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, right. All right, the next one is metaphor. A description that compares a subject to an unrelated object. So this is probably the most obvious one in the entire of of Scripture. Revelation chapter 17, verses 3 and 9. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. All right, so now we got a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names. And had seven heads and ten horns. What in the world is that, right? Um, And then the next phrase is not, I mean, it's helping, I guess. Hey, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Like, thank you for that, yes. Um, the, The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits, all right? So now we got, um, now we have a woman sitting on seven hills, what in the, the, this is the whole Weight Watchers thing, right? Like, what? hey, we probably like. Did you just call me fat? <laughs> <laughs> so hey. this is a deal where it's like, hey, you know, um, probably the woman was not literally sitting on seven hills. Okay. Um, this is, this is an obvious metaphor. But for someone, and you hear this a lot, you'll hear people say, hey, well, you have someone who interprets the Bible literally, or you have someone who interprets the Bible metaphorically, or you have someone who interprets the Bible, you know, uh, over here, like figuratively, like which one is it? And, and the answer is all of them, right? It totally depends on what the author is attempting to communicate. Sometimes in historical narrative, when it says that um, in the days of Caesar Augustus, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, then in historical narrative, and they're giving you history markers, then you should take that literally, okay? Um, That's the genre it fits in. It's very natural that we should interpret it like that, okay? If, 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 If you have a woman who's sitting on a scarlet beast that has seven heads, which are the seven hills on which the woman sits then we should probably take that metaphorically. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Now, I'm using a kind of a, an extreme example to make a point, but you get what I'm talking about. So the person who says, well, are you a literalist or are you a, a figurativist or whatever? I just made up that word. That was awesome. <clears throat> um, then, then the answer that you should give them is, well, it totally depends. W- w- what passage are you talking about, right? 
Have you all ever heard that before? Hey, I read this literally or because the, the, the problem is, is that someone will read um, you know, Luke chapter two, which is the, the uh, birth narrative that I just talk, talked about. And then they'll take that same um, kind of, obs- they're observing what's going on and they'll be like, oh, they're totally ignoring the five W's. And then they pick up to Revelation where in, in this passage, they're like, whoa. And then they're trying to like draw it out on a page. And, you know, I don't know what to do with that. That must be just crazy. And so a lot of people just miss, um, miss a lot because they haven't learned um, these elements of, of observation. All right. Any question about that? <laughs> Glad that you asked. That's why next week we're covering interpretation. <clears throat> so. No, don't do that to me. <laughs> so, um, so uh, if you know, uh, kind of, again, the reason that geography is important, right, is because what city in the ancient world sat on seven hills? Rome did, okay? And Rome was the seat of power, and, and John, in, in his vision of, of the apocalypse, John is seeing um, this, uh, this seat of power that is uh, birthing and housing this antichrist, uh, if you if you want to call it that, okay, and and uh, out of this uh, Rome or and then uh, Rome is also synonymous in Revelation with the city uh, with the city that preceded it as the seat of power and that was Babylon, okay, and so you have Rome and Babylon and Babylon is drinking the wrath of God and ultimately um, you know Christ is coming back and he's he is uh, redeeming all of it, he is uh, vindicating his name against the people who are blaspheming it, all right? So, um, which happens over the next couple of chapters, 17, 18, and 19. Um, so, that's what's happening, and, and, which is why it's important that, hey, people are like, why do I need to know about the geography of it? Well, because of stuff like this, all right? Anything you want to add to that? <laughs> I prefer that's to not awesome. say antichrist when I'm... That's how, yeah, right. That's awesome. Okay, the next figure of speech is paradox, Okay. A statement that seems to contradict but is nevertheless true. Mark chapter 10, verses 43 and 44. Really, 43 to 45, right? Whoever wants to become great among you, so you have someone that's great, must become or be your what? Your servant, all right? Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. So you have this paradoxical statement by Jesus. If you want to be great, then you have to become the one who is not the greatest, right? If you, um, if you want to live, then you have to die. If, if, you, um, uh, if you want to inherit eternal life, then you have to relinquish um, control, right? These are, and really in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of people have said, hey, Jesus is turning the message of the, the message of the kingdom of God is, is flipping everything on its head, right? It's, it's, it's turning things uh, up, upside down or more appropriately right side up, right? We're flying upside down and Jesus is coming and saying, hey, you guys are flying upside down. Let me help you out here, here a little bit, right? And then Jesus says in, in uh, John chapter 10, verse 45, and I'm gonna give Nika a plug here because Nika is about to take the women of this church through the entire gospel of Mark, right? For women's Bible study that starts on September the 11th, 11th. right? So women, if you're not involved in that, then I'd highly encourage you to do that. Nika's done a great job putting that curriculum together. 
and, uh, and leads that team really well. So um, definitely want to plug that for you. But Jesus goes on to say the central verse in all of Mark. All right. And, and he says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And not only to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? Here is the ultimate paradox. God humbles himself, see Philippians chapter 2, and becomes a man, and God dies. Right? This is crazy. This is like... Um, uh, this, is, this is the realization of what has happened by God entering into history, becoming a man just like you and me. All right, gender, gender inclusive. All right, relax, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, God becomes, um, God becomes a man and, and, is, and is like us and, and dies for us. Um, this is, um, yeah, um, the miracle of, Man, of all mankind. All right, so parado- paradoxical statements. For sure, we definitely see a lot of paradox in, in uh, Jesus' teaching mm. about the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Next is hyperbole. This is an intentional exaggeration to make a point. So Matthew 5, Micah talked about this last week. If, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right. Again, like Nika said last week, Jesus is making a point here. He is intentionally exaggerating to show people that, look, um, sin is so um, disgusting and sin is so severe that the, 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 the length to which you go to um, get rid of sin in your life should be, um, uh, you should really go to to whatever links is necessary. Now, let me clarify something here, because there was a guy named Origen in the early church who struggled with lust, and his way of struggling, of stop struggling with lust was to sever his manhood, okay? And so, don't do that, (laughs) all right? Um, Most of you guys are like, thank you. and, and uh, I think that um, ultimately what Jesus is saying here is, is, is look, sin is, um, sin is not so much your behavior as it is the, uh, the affection or the intent of your heart, okay? See, um, in fact, right in this passage, guess what else he's talking about? Hey, um, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who has looked at a woman lustfully in his heart has committed adultery with her already, You've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, um, anyone who is angry with his brother, in fact, anyone who says raka or you fool is, is guilty of the fire of hell, right? And so Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, is raising the bar and, and not just raising the bar. I think he's putting it back where it belongs. It had been distorted over time, but he's putting it back where it belongs. And he's saying, look, um, the, the measure that you take to, to get rid of the sin that is in your heart, right, is, is as extreme as cutting off uh, um, your hand or gouging out your eye. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, so again, r- not just reading this verse and pulling it out and severing your manhood, right? Um, let's, let's be better exegetes than that, right? He's, let's, put it, let's read it in its context, what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, and then reading that passage um, for what it is, which is hyperbole. Okay? Last one, last figure of speech, euphemisms. 
Um, you don't see these a whole ton in Scripture, but they're definitely there, um, especially in uh, the Song of Solomon. All right, But uh, this basically is a tame expression. It's used in the place of something that could potentially be offensive. So Ruth chapter 3, verse 4. Um, when, Bo- when he, or Boaz, if you read the context, he's talking about Boaz. When, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Okay? Um, a lot of us are going to read this and be like, uh, okay, what the heck does that mean? You know? When, if, if you understand the, kind of the, the euphemism, go and uncover his feet, right? Um, she is making a physical advance on him. All right? And so um, uh, when, when it says, he will tell you what to do, I'm like, yes, he will. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so we, you have... We, we don't need to know what you're saying. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <coughs> so Ruth, and, and as, as someone who is gleaning in the field and is, and is definitely a servant and is attempting to advance herself um, by, by uh, um, being married to Boaz, she is approaching him in that way, all right? And, and a, uh, some, some people can argue about this, you know, I think, and Nike, you may have a different take on it, I don't know, but I, I, I think that the euphemism here is, is sexual, okay? Um, yeah. You good with that? Yeah. All right. All right. So those are figures of speech. Any questions or comments or any confusion so far? Nobody? Okay. Nika, you want to add anything? Anything spark your interest as we talked? Nope. All right. Sweet. Doing great. <clears throat> this is either awesome or all you people are falling asleep. One <laughs> of the two. All right. <clears throat> Moving on. Conjunctions. All right. Hey, conjunctions. Um, conjunctions are probably... Uh, when, when, when we are observing things, this is probably one of the most important things that we can pay attention to. All right? Well, why is that? What does a conjunction do? All right? All right, it separates it. Go ahead, Russ, send it. All right, yeah, yeah. It's what now? Yeah, there you go, Schoolhouse Rock. All right, so what is the function of a conjunction? The conjunction junction. All right, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it joins things together um, for, for sure. It can, uh, um, uh, so, so in, in a verse like Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, and then the conjunction is what? <clears throat> but, and so it's, it's, it's tying these two things together, but it's also uh, um, contrasting them. So for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So you have, Sin and death, and then you have um, gift of God and eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, <clears throat> um, another another one that that the entire book of Romans hinges on, right, is at the end of of uh, chapter seven and the beginning of verse of, of chapter eight of Romans. Anybody know Romans eight one? Want to spit it out real quick? Yeah, there is there therefore there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Okay, Paul had made the entire argument for eight chapters, how we're all sinful. We're all far from God. We're all going our own way. And then in chapter eight, bam, but therefore there is no condemnation. 
right? This is a massive theological shift in probably the most uh, important theological book in all of Scripture, okay? Um, man, pay attention to that stuff. I know it seems really small, and it's kind of like, eh, okay, may, it might skip over that, but I'm telling you, these are, these are massive shifts that these words produce, okay? Next, verb tense and voice. This is really important as well. Um, Colossians 3.1 is a really obvious one. So you have, some of y'all might be like, what is tense and voice? So when you start studying verbs, you, you typically pay attention to the tense and the voice and the mood of, of a verb. But you're like, dude, a verb has a mood? Like, what kind of mood is the They're verb They're sassy in? sometimes. <laughs> exactly. So the tense, if any of y'all are grammarians in here, the tense is, is, is whether it's past or present or future. Okay, that's the tense of a verb. The voice of the verb, which is like, okay, the voice also, the verb also has a voice. The voice of the verb is either passive, so something is happening to you and, and someone else is producing an action on you, or it's active, which means what? You are producing the action, okay? And then there's this whole idea of like a middle or a reflexive voice as well, but we'll just stick with active and passive. So the verb tense and voice. Since then, you have been raised... It's supposed to say raised. Yep, typo. Sorry. Bam. You know what? I can handle this real quick. Stand by. While he's doing that, you know, earlier he, he did the Romans 12 passage, right? And if you saw it, it talked about being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so the goal of that, like your job in that, you're, you're receiving the transformation. The only active part of that was what? the transforming of the mind. And so that's why observing these tenses allows you to go, hey, this is God's role yep. in my life. And then not sure. And talking. Not sure oh, there we happened. go, Bat. Yep. Nish is messing with you back <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, tense. Uh, since you have been raised, is that active or passive? That's passive, okay? And, 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 in, and in this sense, this is what we call a divine passive, where the action that is happening to the, to the person is being performed by God, Okay. So God is the one who has raised you with his son, Christ, okay? Which is, I mean, that in itself is crazy. Like you could camp out there for a really long time. You have been raised with Christ. Like the son of God was raised from the dead and, and, in, and in some sense um, that is already true about you but will ultimately um, be true about you in the resurrection is that you also have been raised with Christ. You are, um, you are a co-heir with him. You, are, you have inherited what he has accomplished for you. This is a massive statement about your identity as a person who is in Christ. So you, what have we done by being raised with Christ? We've done nothing. You have done nothing. You have been raised with Christ. And so the indicative that, that that's just a, a declarative statement about you. That's an indicative. It's just true. So since then, you have been raised with Christ, which is a statement about your identity, about who you are in Christ. Therefore, or, or, or set your hearts on things above. So the setting of our hearts, is that active or passive? That's active. So since something has happened to us, then and only then, because something is true about us, then we behave in a certain way, not because we're trying to please God, but because we're acceptable to him already. Right? 
This is a, this is a foundational passage about what motivates us to um, obey the imperatives of Scripture is because you are a son and a daughter of God. It's massive. Now I'm preaching, dadgummit. <clears throat> all right? Since then, you have been raised with Christ, all right, which is past tense, passive voice. You set your hearts, present tense, active voice, on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Um, also an interesting observation there. Hey, you have been raised with Christ, and Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There is, there is this nature of, of an inheritance of the things that come at the right hand of God. Um, man, it's good. It's good. It's rich. <clears throat> All right, Nike, you want to add anything to that, Mom? Um, he mentioned mood, and just so you know, he, he used the word indicative. And uh, they matter a little less in the English, but where he's getting this from is in the Greek. You'll have different types of mood, which there's indicative statements, which are just factual. And then you'll have commands or you'll have um, things that are like urging us to do is like all the let us. Those are called subjunctives when we see them or cohortatives and all that. And so even making note of that. You, when just, it, lo- you just lost a bunch of people. With I did. Yeah. <laughs> but I gained you, Nate. Um, and so just even keeping track of, hey, this is a command. This is different than just a true statement. Like in there, the true statement. And the indicative, what he said is, you've been raised with Christ, yep. and then that's followed with the command, therefore, set your hearts on things above. And so just even making note of that, because, you know, rather than worrying about your responsibility when it's really not yours, it's God's, that's a good thing. And then just, you know, having indicatives that you know are true about you in light of what mm-hmm. Christ has done for you, those are just good things to hold on to as, as life gets hard, and it's good to be reminded of who you are in Christ. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, I would just say one more thing to that because um, I'm, I'm, uh, I think a lot about kind of uh, discipleship and, and transformation. And uh, I would just tell you, like, um, there, there is, um, uh, there can be in certain evangelical Christian circles this idea that if I just do X, Y, and Z, then, then I'll be good. Like, I won't struggle with anything. I won't... You know, there's this idea of, of if I'm just, if I just behave a certain way, then, then uh, I'll be acceptable to God or I won't struggle over here or I'll be a, you know, frankly, it's kind of, I'll be a good little boy, you know, um, I'll, God won't be angry at me or something like that. Um, and I would just tell you, like, we bring a lot of baggage to the table as believers, baggage from our own brokenness, baggage from our broken parents that parented us in a very broken way, all right? Um, baggage about our own f- expectations about li- the way we thought life should be, that all of that forms our image about the way we see God, right? And, and not just the way we see God, but the way we believe that God sees us, and so many of us are, are in, some, in some circles, many of us are hyperactive to, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way to try to please God. And, and as someone who struggles with this, all right, um, we're, we're hyperactive to, to try to please God and it's passages like this, right, that come and give you an indicative about who you are to take away any kind of ambiguity about who you are. To where God, and unequivocally, without any kind of reservation, says, I absolutely am pleased with you. I'm not, I'm not angry at you. I'm not after you. I'm not disappointed in you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I love you. Receive the love of God. And, and it's interesting um, when, you, when, when, that, when that indicative takes root not only in your brain but in your heart 
then you see a different kind of activity out of someone who is truly bearing the fruit of the Spirit, right? And, and so um, that was a little just a side sermonette for you. Um, more to come. Now I'm going to plug my class, all right? Um, uh, in October the 18th, we have a, a training day, which is another equipping deal that we do um, as, an, as an equipping team. It's a day of equipping. It's just a three-hour um, block. There's three classes that are going on. And uh, one of them is a class that I'm teaching with a buddy of mine named Duke Rivard on, on the stuff I just told you about, kind of the nature of sanctification or Christ. How do we become like Christ and how do we grow in that? So if that piqued your interest while I was talking about that, then come hang out with us in a couple of months. All right. All right, got to drive on. Pronouns and reference. All right, this is, this can be confusing. That's why sometimes it helps to like circle a, a, a personal pronoun and then draw a line to connect it to its referent. Okay, you, you'll see what I'm talking about here in a second. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. What in the world? Well, there's a lot of he's and his going on there, right? Sometimes it can be confusing. Who, wait, who chose this again? Was that the father or the son? I'm not really sure, right? So, so to be able to go back through that and read carefully to see like, hey, who has chosen us? Um, and then who are we chosen in? Or to whom are we chosen in? And so it's a, uh, um, again, making a circle and then uh, maybe connecting those through various lines and then drawing that back to its referent. So you know, actually the father did this, the son is doing this. Okay, so in some of these passages that use a lot of personal pronouns, sometimes it's really helpful to do that. All right. Next, general to, to uh, specific. Um, Galatians 5. Uh, again, we, we read this. I won't necessarily read all of it again, but I will make the point. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the, desire of the f- desires of the flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And then he goes through, um, through that. So what he's saying is walk by the spirit, which is a very general statement, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, which is also a very general statement. What is walking in the spirit look like? And, or, or what is evidence of walking in the spirit? And what is evidence of walking in the flesh? So he, he introduces two very general topics. And then what does he do? He gives you specifics on what that means, okay? And, and again, we're looking at lists, we're looking at contrast, we're looking at general to specific, all in this one passage, okay? Next, specific to general. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, all right? I obviously did not print out 1 Corinthians 13 on, on the slide, but um, what's this a chapter on? Love, 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 right? You go to a wedding, it's like mandatory. You gotta read about love, right? <laughs> um, I can speak the tongues of men and angels, but if I don't have love, I have nothing, you know? And, and people are like, oh, okay. Um, but, but what Paul is, uh, is doing in this chapter is that he's taking something that is very specific where he says love is patient, love is kind, love is all of these things. It's not easily angered. Um, and he goes through that. And then more generally toward the end of the chapter, he says, now abide these three, um, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, okay? So he goes from a very specific um, uh, list of what love is. And then by the end of the chapter, he's talking generally about what love is. You guys tracking with this so far? All right. 
All right, question and answer. Romans 6, um, 1 and 15. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. All right, Paul is using a literary technique here to emphatically make a point. Um, He is asking a question and then he is answering his own question by language that I can't repeat here. <laughs> I thought about this earlier. I was like, man, what if I actually said it? Then I'd probably not be teaching you know, later. That's for the but, Q&A when we're off the mics. Yeah, that's fine. Um, there are, there's some colorful language that Paul uses. He's not a tame horse. All right. <clears throat> and then, uh, so next, dialogue. So John chapter four, you, you guys know who Jesus is talking to in John four? Yeah, the, the, uh, the woman by the well in, in uh, Samaria. So he's, he is, uh, he's discoursing with her, um, he's dialoguing with her um, through, throughout this passage. So when you run up against a section like that, then you want to, if you want to, just make a marker. Hey, a conversation is going on here. So I need to read it like it is a conversation. I don't need to read this conversation the way I would read apocalyptic literature where it says a woman is sitting on seven hills. Okay, just markers. You're observing what's there. Next, purpose and result. For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So um, the purpose is what? What produced the result of God sending his only son? Do what? Yeah, the love of God. Okay, so, so we, have, we have a purpose that is driving, and I would say in this verse, obviously you guys know this, and there's a reason you know it, because it's so central to the message of Jesus in the book of John, that the love of God is driving him to missionally pursue and, and, and save the world, <laughs> okay? And, and, and ultimately, if you know, does anybody know the context of this chapter? Who is he talking to? Nicodemus, okay, a, a Pharisee. And, and Jesus is, is imploring him um, that, hey, um, not only has, has God loved the world, but that um, he, because he loved the world, he sent his only son, and that, that the, the people who respond to the son and, and uh, believe in him in a relational sense, um, man, they, they just won't perish. And he's also making a statement about himself to a Pharisee. It's fascinating, all right? All right, means... Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Okay, again, remember I talked a second ago about, hey, some of us are like, hey, I just need to behave a certain way, right? Not only is that um, not the right way, but I would also say according to this passage, it is impossible for you to do that. Why? What is the only, and I mean the only, means of putting to death the deeds of the flesh? That's exactly right. This is, who said that? Hey, star for you, right? Yeah, celebrate. <laughs> um, this is, this is, a, uh, this is a, um, a definitive verse on spiritual transformation that, that you not only can... Uh, uh, sh- um, do you, should you not want to achieve this? You can't achieve this. This is a work of the Spirit in your life. And so the only appropriate, um, the, the only appropriate response 
that we have um, uh, is, is for us to surrender to the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, now, that means something that, again, I'm going to plug my class. If you want to know more about that, come, we'll talk about it. But, but this, is a, this is obviously a, a, a verse that has at its heart this means of the Spirit, then you will put to death the misdeeds of the body. And when that happens, then you're going to experience the kind of life that God created you for. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All right? Uh, a conditional clause. So when, uh, when the old goes and the new is here, that's conditional upon what? Uh, it's conditional on someone being in Christ. Uh, it's, this is a, I mean, uh, in other words, uh, for people who are not in Christ, the old is still there. Um, the, the only way for the old to go away and for the new to come is for the new to um, indwell in the power of the Spirit um, in your life, for you to be, um, in a very real sense, for you to be in Christ. And so, again, uh, conditional clauses, paying attention to these things, looking and seeing, hey, what, what's there? What is the text saying? Um, paying attention to clauses like this. 17, I love this. It's one of my favorite um, uh, passages in, in Matthew. Um, but he, he just says, uh, Jesus is looking over Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and, and stoned those who sent you, um, how often I've longed to gather your children together as, hens, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left, you desolate. Right? This is a prophet, this is a Jewish prophet who is looking over the city of Jerusalem and he is lamenting. He's probably weeping while he says this. Right? And there is an emotional connection that the reader is intended to have in passages like this. So if you just gloss over it and you're not paying attention to what is, what is actually happening in this passage, then you're going to miss the fundamental purpose that this verse was even added into the text. For you, for you to connect with the fact that Jesus is grieving over his people because they've rejected him as their Messiah. Okay? Emotional terms. Another one, is, another one of my favorite is John chapter 7 when in, at the uh, Feast of Booths. And at, on the last and greatest day of the feast, he stands up and he says, Hey, is any of you thirsty? You got to picture this. This is in the court. This is in the courtyard of the temple. Thousands of people. This is not like the loft where you're a couple hundred, right? Thousands of people. And Jesus stands up over thousands of people. So do you think he's crying out a loud voice so that people can hear him? Yes. He's probably screaming at the top of his lungs. All right? So he stands up and, he's, and, and he says, hey, is any of you thirsty? Come to me and, and, and I will give you, out of your soul will spring up streams of living water. Um, it, I mean, uh, no wonder this guy was controversial, right? I mean, uh, they're, they're attempting to worship Yahweh and ask Yahweh to rain down on them so that they can grow crops for another year. And there's a prophet from Galilee that stands up over there and screams at the top of his lungs, hey guys, um, are you praying to God for water? If you come to me, I will water your soul. Then they tried to arrest him. <laughs> All right. But again, there is, there is intended to be a, an emotional connection. You have set the stage, and, and just like if you read the email that I sent you, where the man is entering into the, to the experience of Rembrandt's prodigal son. 
You are intended to enter into the narrative and experience the emotion that's going on there. And I, I really do, I deeply believe that the Holy Spirit uses Scripture in this way to connect with you on, on an emotional and a relational level. Okay? Unusual words. <clears throat> Exodus 28, right? Put the Urim and the Thummim in the breast piece so that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. The obvious question is what? What is the Urim and the Thummim, right? Man, good luck with that, right? But obviously when you come to the text and you're like, man, I've never in my life seen that word before, all right? You, you might want to circle that or highlight it or something, all right? Um, just, just paying attention to that. And then next week, Micah is going to walk us through, man, how do you look up words? How do you study words? How do you, what do you do about these unusual words? Um, we'll, we'll cover that next week. All right. Major shifts. <coughs> Again, I talked about this a little bit. I won't cover it because um, I've already covered it. But the end of, of Romans chapter seven, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? And then he shifts from the first half of Romans to thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord and goes on to say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, that is a massive shift. You might want to pay attention to that, all right? You're observing that that's a massive shift. And then lastly, names for God. Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, all right, which is a name for God, the, the second person of the Trinity, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Um, for through him, for through Christ, we both have access to the Father. There's another name for God. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, by one spirit, the third person of the Trinity. All right. So in this passage, we're, we're seeing a Trinitarian kind of formulation that Paul is saying, hey, this is, you are being reconciled by Christ, in Christ, to the Father, by the Spirit. That's, Christ, that's Christian orthodoxy. Okay, that's good, solid Trinitarianism, that, that we are being reconciled to the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit. Okay, so when you see names for God like this, just pay attention to um, the fact that they're there. All right? I want to add to that, Nathan, just yep. to back up to pronouns and reference and for names for God, just to help you. So if you're in passages where there's a lot of pronouns and a lot of names for God, rather than circling and, and writing an arrow back, what I'll do is every time I see Christ in the text, I put a cross. Every time I see God, I put a triangle. And every time I see the Holy Spirit, I just put an HS. And so it helps you to kind of, one, your eye immediately sees when they're all three members of the Trinity are in the text. And that's something that typically is important to note. And then it just helps you with references. So you're not confusing the he's, the you know, and all of those words just to, just as a, a methodology that I've adopted. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And uh, anybody equipped disciple in here? Anybody gone through that ministry? All right. You guys, you guys have at least been introduced to, Hey, here's how you mark your Bible. Here's how you're doing these things. So when you observe, when you're asking the question, what do I see? All right. For that discipline, man, you should be marking all over your Bible. 
all right? You should be marking, man, that's a major shift. There's a, there's a personal pronoun. Here's the referent to that. Um, here's a contrast. Man, this is, I see kind of like general to specific going on here. Um, uh, oh, there's a name for God. What's, what's this talking about? It, all right, do you see what I'm saying? All right, and over time, as you're applying this, at first it's gonna feel wooden. It's gonna feel like, ugh, all right, get my sheet out. What's, you know, what's this? I gotta, okay, yeah, that's that. All right, it's gonna feel a little bit like you're in school. But I'm telling you, like, take that baby step and baby step and baby step, and then before you know it, it's gonna feel like it's second nature. And you're just gonna do it without even thinking about it, okay? So um, again, this is the step that most people skip. Most people skip this, and their interpretation is all jacked up, and guess what happens to their application? It's also all jacked up, all right? Um, uh, uh, irresponsible observation or irresponsible exegesis will result in chaotic living. It just, it just does. And so, um, Nike, do you want to add anything before we have them do? No, uh, I, mean, I, yeah, I mean, just to that point, I mean, there's just no, yeah, I mean, this whole process, we talked about this briefly last week, it's, it's driven by the Holy Spirit. And so you think about an enemy at work in you, he's going to want to make you a lazy exegete. I mean, he's going to want to make you not want to read your Bible. He's going to want to make you want to take shortcuts. Um, and this is hands down the, the place where everybody does the shortcuts. And so, you know, some people are like, observation, we're going to do an hour and a half of observation. Tonight. Well, uh, so many of these things will illumine the text for you in such a way that just even just reading through it and observing, you're beginning to really bring that scripture into your life. And so, so many times when we talk about memorizing scripture and doing things like that, the more you're absorbed in this task, the easier it gets to memorize that because you're thinking, man, I color copied that whole sheet with, you know, Jesus is green and because I don't know why he would be green, but whatever. Um, Holy Spirit's blue because he's like waves and, you know, whatever. But you have a system and as you're doing that, suddenly you're going, man, I remember that passage. I remember that major shift. I mean, so somebody goes, ah, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm a big sinner. And you go, no, no, no. You need to go read the end of Romans 7 because look at Romans 8 in light of the fact that you're big wicked sinner Christ saves you and so these are the things that will start to make the scripture come alive in your heart and just help you to to really own this stuff rather than just you know you guys remember high school you remember you know diagramming sentences and things like that and it's not fun but when you're doing the word of God it brings it to life in a real way and so we would commend you to just continue to do this totally hey does anybody have any questions we're going to get you to do one more exercise before we leave but does anybody have any questions before we push on to that. Yep, go ahead. Uh, yeah, can you? Yep. Go for well, it. Well, let's, let's do it. We're, we're recording it, so um, we'd like for people to hear your voice. <laughs> you spoke about pronouns, huh? and I've noticed recently when I've been looking at the Bible myself, and now you brought it to light, I'm just really wondering why he, his, any of those pronouns aren't capitalized. Yeah. So um, you have to understand in, in, uh, in the original language, none of it is. Well, actually, in the original language, all of it is. Yeah, all of it, and there are no spaces between <laughs> yeah, words. Yeah, that's right. So um, when it was originally written, they wrote in, in what we call uh, unshul characters, which is all caps. So it's like if you, you're, you hit the all caps button and type, everything's a capital letter. No space bar. And, and, uh, and they also wrote, the Latin term for it is scriptio continua, which is continuous script. Um, that it's, there, there's no spaces between the words or anything like that. Now, they did do something um, called the nomen sacrum, which is the, um, a sacred name, where they would um, abbreviate a sacred name 
um, to as as a as a marker to show, hey, this is Father, this is Son, um, this is Spirit. Sometimes they do it. Sometimes they spell it out. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to it. But what you need to understand is when it when it was translated into English, some versions, some versions, um, because it, the referent to that personal pronoun is the name of God, then they will also capitalize the the uh, personal pronoun. Not all translations do that. Only some of them do. But it's a, it's, it's a way that the translation committee of that uh, specific version made the decision, hey, out of respect for the name of God, we're also going to capitalize the referent. Um, me personally, I don't think it says anything disrespectful if you don't capitalize it. Um, there, was no, there was no capitalization or, or way to um, do that when it was originally written, and I don't think it says anything like, "Oh, um, I, um, I, I don't respect the name of God because I use a lowercase." I just, I, I just think it's a stylistic pre- preference for someone. Well, they don't. They do capitalize father and they do capitalize spirit. Yeah, because those are personal names. Okay. Yep. Yep. Anybody else? But hey, that's a great observation. <laughs> Good job. Anybody else? Okay, now here's what I want you to do. When y'all came in uh, tonight, I had you, so flip your sheet over again to your Acts 1-8 thing, and you were to observe Acts 1-8. Now, I want you to do that again, okay? Do it again, um, do the second one underneath it, and then I'll come up in about um, five or six minutes, and I'll close our time together, make some comments about it, and then I'll close our time, all right? So use the stuff we just went through and observe Acts chapter 1, verse 8. All right, how'd we do? What was, what was the difference, any difference for you guys from what you came in and how you, the first and second time? All right, maybe, maybe a few more insights. All right, um, what I would challenge you to do is, as, is maybe, um, maybe sit on this for a little while. And because uh, I will tell you this, and maybe even sleep on it, <laughs> um, uh, kind of one of the fascinating things I've been learning lately is, is how our, our brains learn like while we sleep, you know? So we'll, we'll take in content, but then it solidifies in our brains while we're asleep. So maybe tomorrow or the next day or something like that, maybe pull this back out and revisit it and see like um, uh, what, uh, what observations you would make. I would just tell you to, to sum up our time. Um, but, but you will receive power when, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so there's one of my observations is that there is a direct correlation between receiving power and the Holy Spirit coming on you, okay? So um, the Holy Spirit is not only the agent of transformation in our lives, the Holy Spirit is also the agent that gives us the power to be the type of people that God has called us to be. So in your workplace, in your home, in your leisure, in wherever your sphere of influence is, the one person who is empowering you to live the way that God wants you to live is the Holy Spirit, okay? And so there is this aspect of, um, of asking yourself the question on a daily basis, hey, um, Lord, am I believing the gospel about my life? Am I believing the indicatives that you have said about me in scripture in my life? Am I walking in the power of the Spirit? Am I bearing the type of fruit that is consistent with the Spirit? Am I, am, I love, am, I, am I full of love and joy and peace and so forth and so on? 
that, that there is, that there is a, um, a plugging into the power source so that God can both fill you and use you at the same time. Okay, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and a direct correlation to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is that you will be his witness. Right? There, is a, there is a missional aspect. God has not just saved you as his son and daughter to leave you there. He has invited you to be on mission with him in what he is doing in the world. So as you are plugging into the spirit, abiding with Christ, as, as you are um, being filled with the spirit, then, then not only is he completing you as a person, but he's also empowering you to be a change agent for the people around you, in your workplace, in your home, in your leisure, whatever sphere of influence is in your life. This is naturally what happens when the Holy Spirit is indwelling and empowering you, then he is, he is sending you out on mission as his witness. And then, pay attention, um, both in Jerusalem, which is a city, um, uh, the, 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 the center of primitive Christianity, Jerusalem. And then Judea, which is where? That's the region that Jerusalem is in. And then to Samaria, where is Samaria? Samaria is the neighbor of Judea. The hated neighbor. <laughs> All right, yeah, the hated neighbor. And, and then to the rest of the world. So you see a specific to what? A specific to general. It's an outward movement. Jesus is telling us the way that Christianity is going to spread. It starts with you, and then it goes to the region that you're in, and then it goes to the neighboring region, and then it goes out to the rest of the world. But the way that you reach the rest of the world is you pour into your Jerusalem. And, and, and then as the, that Jerusalem spreads, then just like the early church did in the rest of the book of Acts, in fact, Acts 1.8 really provides context as an outline for the rest of the book of Acts because guess what the rest of the book of Acts says? Christianity started in Jerusalem, it went to Judea, it went to Samaria, and then it went to the rest of the world. That is the book of Acts. And hey, guys, God's wanting to do that with you too. All right. He's not trying to spread us thin like, hey, we should all go out to the rest of the world. The, the rest of your world is in your workplace, in your home, in your, in your spheres of influence that God has given you. And, and the question you should ask is, hey, am I plugging into the power of the Holy Spirit so that I can be the type of person um, that, that is a, an appropriate and an empowered and an effective witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the kingdom of God can, can come as Jesus prayed that it would come in the disciples' prayer. Um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So this week, guys, hey man, let's go and, let's go and be the church. Let's go and be people who walk in the power of the Spirit to be witnesses for the life change that God has brought about in our lives, all right? Hey, Nike's up next week, so you definitely want to be there for that, all right? But hey, <laughs> Y'all have a great week, all right?